We're going to be in uh, the book of Ruth today. Um, We are in week four of our series through the book of Ruth. Um, We are actually in chapter three of the book of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible, um, you're actually welcome to make your way to the table that's in the back of the room. Um, You'll find uh, Bibles on that table that we would love for you to take home with you today, um, as well as mugs that we'd love for you to take home and books as well. Um, if, you have a, if you have a moment to fill out a Connect card, I would love for you to do that so we can pray for you this week. Um, you can drop it in the offering box. It's also back there um, on the back table. Um, we are in, like I said, Ruth chapter 3. If you use one of the Bibles from the back there, it's page 208, I believe. Um, we are nearing the end of this series through the book of Ruth. We have just one more week to go, uh, which will be uh, next Sunday. Um, And we have gone through uh, lots of different events in the life of Ruth. Um, Where we left off last time is that Ruth, um, widowed, is in the fields of Bethlehem. She's gleaning and trying to make a living and provision for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she is in the field of Boaz. And Boaz, um, not not by accident, but by the providence of God, he gets her to this field, and Boaz is um, a generous man who's ready and willing to provide for Ruth and Naomi. And at this point, um, Ruth would have continued working in Boaz's field um, along with his household for around 30 days until the end of the harvest comes around. So between the end of chapter 3, and the be- or the end of chapter 2, rather, and the beginning of chapter 3, there's probably been about a month of Ruth working in Boaz's fields, Um, Boaz no doubt continuing to be um, faithful and generous and kind um, to her, which is what sets the table for what we are about to find here in chapter three. Um, Once again, like last week, this is a longer passage, and so uh, we're gonna stand in a minute to uh, read it together. Um, If you're unable to stand either uh, for all of this reading, that is okay. Um, Like last week, God doesn't... uh, don't look down on you for that, and nor will we. Um, it's a longer passage, but if you're able, I'd love for you to stand with us out of reverence for God's word as we read it together um, now. We'll read the entirety of Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with, those, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. In that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. 
And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. We'll pray together. Father, as we come before your word now, um, we recognize that um, the story that we read um, can be confusing at times, and uh, just like as we live our own lives, it can be confusing at times, and we pray for your wisdom to understand your word, your wisdom to uh, have it apply to our hearts and lives well, and that above all things that we would see the worthiness, the greatness of Jesus Christ, our Savior, um, more clearly at the end of today than at the beginning, and we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. In the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So as we come to this story, I admit, and we would all admit that as we read it, parts of this story um, seem rather bizarre to us as we read them, right? As you read a story about a woman who goes in the middle of the night and cover, uncovers the feet of a man and then lays down at his feet, he wakes up probably around midnight and then they have this conversation about um, spreading his wings over her and then he's like, all right, well, if somebody else spreads his wings over you, then he gets to do that first and then I'll come over if, if he doesn't do that. And a lot of this can um, seem really bizarre. Um, and so we're going to work our way through it and, and you see that there's a lot of um, Old Testament and historical culture that's coming into play as we read this story, but there's three main sections of what was, what's going on here, so if you're somebody that likes headings and, and structure and everything like that, um, then it's the plan is the first thing that we'll talk about. We see the plan that Naomi has in two through four. We see the proposal that Ruth brings to Boaz, and then you see uh, the problem or the complication in the last section, and we'll go through all those things and, and, and then talk about how this story really matters to us today at the end. And so the first thing that we see is that Naomi introduces all of this with this question. My daughter, Naomi, the mother-in-law, speaking to her daughter-in-law. Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? That it may be well with you. See, this is really interesting because Naomi says something that kind of parallels what she said in Ruth uh, chapter 1 verse 9. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 9, as Naomi is trying to convince Orpah and Ruth to turn back and to stay in Moab, she actually says to them, you guys need to turn back and may you find rest in the house of a husband. She, she's saying to them back in chapter 1, if you come back with me, there's no way I can provide for you. You ought to stay here. It's the only way you'll get rest. It's the only way you'll be taken care of is if you go and stay where you are, find a husband and be taken care of there. But now, a few chapters later, Naomi is seeing that there is actually rest that God had prepared for Ruth before Naomi saw it. And so Naomi says, shouldn't I seek this rest for you? Not just provision for the rest of the harvest season and not just a good couple of weeks, but shouldn't I seek out something for you so that you are taken care of and provided for going forward so that your life can actually be at rest? 
And so she hatches this plan, and she explains this plan to Ruth. She says, Boaz is going to be with all of his men of all of his household. They're going to be at the threshing floor tonight, um, which is a place outside the city where the farmers, after the harvest, would take um, everything that they had harvested all year long. You have to remember, they don't have any of the tools that we have, right? And so they would go out to a place that was flat and very windy, and they would go out there, and they would take the barley or the wheat, you would crush it, and then you would throw it into the air, and the wind would take away the chaff, the part that you didn't need, and it would, um, the weightier part, the part that actually mattered, would fall back to the ground, and you'd be able to keep the part of the harvest that was actually good. So Boaz and his men are going to be doing that with the entirety of the harvest. And not only that, they're going to have a festival or a party or a feast as they do it. Because if you remember this, this is the first harvest that Bethlehem has had after a famine. So as much fun as it would normally be to have a literal, like, um, a party for the harvest, um, they are going to be extremely excited, right? They went through this time of famine that was so severe that people were fleeing uh, Bethlehem. Now they have a harvest again. So they're going to be in a good mood, and Boaz is going to be in a great mood. And, and Naomi wants Ruth to have a moment where she can talk to Boaz alone, and he will be in a good mood. And so as she talks to him and brings up uh, marriage, he's ready, perhaps, to hear it. Little does she know that Boaz needs no convincing on this matter, but that's still the plan and a wise plan that she has. So all these directions that she gives, she says to go and to uncover his feet and lay down. These are strange to us, but they're really not so strange to Ruth. On the first hand, we have to remember that this is what's really going on in all this is a marriage proposal. That's what's happening. And we can see this clearly even from the fact that it starts with Naomi seeking Ruth's rest in the house of a husband. So everything that she's giving to her, all the instructions are about um, this marriage proposal. And even as she goes to uncover Boaz's feet, this, this uh, moment and expression even in the culture of this intimacy between them in a very um, intimate moment. And you also know that a marriage proposal is going on here because of how Boaz responds to all of this. And she lays down at his feet, because if you didn't know this in, in this time, if um, they were out, right, they're out away from the city, away from everything else, essentially camping, but with no tent or anything like that. If Boaz, the master of the house, was laying down to sleep, his servant of his house would literally lay down perpendicular at his feet, almost as a way to show that they were guarding um, the owner, the, the, the manager of the household. And that's exactly where Ruth lays down, not because she's his servant, but because she um, is demonstrating to him the dependence that she has on him. Right, in this moment, Ruth is incredibly dependent. She has been dependent on Boaz for about a month now, and she's saying, even more so in this moment, she is utterly dependent on him and his response to this question. So some people read into this chapter. You might read people on this chapter. You might hear people speak on this chapter. And I think that they read um, into all these details and they insinuate all sorts of inappropriate things that happen at the threshing floor. Um, and then they sort of point, like they, there's a bit of a feeling we can have of like um, that that's somehow the more faithful interpretation. But I'm here to tell you today that there's absolutely no evidence of anything like that happening in this story. We have to think, first of all, how out of place it would be. The entirety of this story, Ruth and Boaz have, have basically had like almost perfect character, like as perfect as anyone can appear to be, these two people. So then all of a sudden, why would it make sense that in this moment, they decide to throw all of that away? And not only that, but the, 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 the language is actually incredibly 
clear that this is what Ruth did. She went. Boaz was asleep. He was by himself. She pulls back um, the blanket from over his feet, which essentially sets an alarm clock, which, because at some point now Boaz is going to get cold during the night, and he's going to wake up, and they can have this conversation. And so Ruth does that and lays down um, crosswise at his feet to show her dependence upon him in this moment. And then Boaz says, um, here in this proposal in verse 10, he says that Ruth's kindness and, and her greatness, essentially, has keep, it keeps on getting better and better. Keeps on getting better and better. He says, blessed are you, my daughter, for you, this last kindness exceeds the first. Just funny, we talked about how this story um, revolves around this word hesed, which is a Hebrew word that um, they constructed, and we don't really know have a great way to translate it, but the word hesed means loving kindness, essentially. It means this kindness that is covenantal and it's purposeful and it's a committed kindness and love that seeks always to be more generous, more kind, and more um, faithful. And that's what Boaz said. He's like, I thought that you were faithful and kind and generous before, but even now, it's even more so. Because apparently Ruth, um, whether she was a really attractive woman or whatever it was, she would have had the means apparently to seek after other men to marry, whether they were poor or rich. And apparently there's a bit of an age gap between Ruth and Boaz, right? Because he says you could have had younger men, whether poor or rich, but what he notices about Ruth is that she has a desire to follow God's um, glory and his law more than she desires to just fulfill what she would maybe want in a husband. In going this direction, Ruth and Naomi are seeking to follow a law in the Old Testament that we'll talk about in just a moment. So Ruth could have sought other men. Ruth wasn't necessarily bound to, to seek out following this commandment from God, but she chose to do it. She chose to honor the family that she had uh, married into. She chose to honor the mother-in-law that she had. She chose to honor the God that she had decided to follow instead of necessarily getting um, a man that she may be more readily desired. And notice how the great love that does exist between Ruth and Boaz here, it comes because they both love God. There's an amazing bond and connection between Ruth and Boaz. And that entirely, if you read through the rest of the story, even what we've already talked about, that all was there because they saw the character and the greatness in the other person, Right? Boaz sees the faithfulness, the loving kindness of Ruth in the field, and he is amazed by that. And so he seeks her out because of that. And Ruth sees the faithfulness, the generosity, the love, and the holiness of Boaz, and so she seeks that out. That's the bond of their relationship. It's not just, this isn't a Hallmark movie where Ruth saw Boaz and thought he was hot, and Boaz saw Ruth and saw, thought she was pretty. And all these things are great, and, and Boaz says that he would love, in fact, to redeem her, but there's a problem. There's a complication in the design, and you see that in verse 12, where he says that he would love to redeem her, but there is a redeemer nearer than I. So Boaz is eager and ready to marry her, to redeem her. He doesn't have to be forced into that, but there's a problem, and that is in the law, and if you, if you read about it in places like Deuteronomy 25, uh, Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 is where it talks about this law. Um, it's this law of the kinsman redeemer. In your Bible, it probably will say laws concerning leveret marriage, because that's an old antiquated term for brother-in-law, the word leveret. 
So in Deuteronomy 25, is just one of the places that God lays out this law, where he talks about when brothers uh, dwell together, and then one of the brothers, um, he, he dies, and he hasn't had children yet. Then one of the other brothers um, steps in, not just to uh, marry the woman, but to have children in the place of the man that died. And the reason that God um, created this law is because in the Old Testament, it was really, really important that they would preserve families and not just immediate families. Because when it talks about Boaz being a relative um, and, and being in the family, he's not Ruth's brother. He's not Naomi's brother. Um, their conception of the family was a bit bigger than what we have. Okay, And so we're talking about um, tr- preserving the lineage of tribes of Israel. That's why this law exists. And we're going to get like deep into the weeds for just a second about Old Testament law. I promise you that it matters. I promise you that, that if you stay with me, we'll see why this is a really glorious thing. Um, and so God desi- assigned all these different duties to these family members in the Old Testament. This wasn't just about marriage. It was things like if one of your relatives was um, in debt and they had to sell their property, then it was one of your kinsmen redeemers, somebody who was related to you, who would go and pay and bring that land back into the family. They would pay on your behalf because Israel had been given um, permanent um, plots of land in the promised land. And so God says, I don't want that land to get scattered across different families. It's supposed to say in the tribe that it was allotted to. And so if your brother-in-law, if your nephew, if your um, uncle had to sell off his land because he was in debt, it was up to you as a near relative to pay for that and bring him back, to care for the man in your family that was in debt or woman in your family that was in debt. Not only that, but if one of your relatives was killed, it was actually on the same person to go and to seek justice for the man or the woman that had been killed. The same uh, relation. Not only that, but if your brother or sister or a relative was so in debt that they had to sell themselves into slavery, then it was on the kinsman redeemer to go to buy them out of slavery, to bring them back and make them a free person, again, to pay their debt. So these are just like the gleaning laws that we talked about last week. Part of these things is the fact that God is trying to provide for the weak and the needy among the people of Israel, right? The people who got into debt and couldn't provide for themselves. The widow who was left without any means of provision for herself. God is creating these laws, yes, to uh, take care of them in one sense. But he's also trying to preserve justice at the same time. Um, But lastly, in this case, he's seeking about um, creating and and keeping a family line going. A few things that I think are important to clarify about this law, because we can read it, uh, maybe you read it in Deuteronomy 25, and it seems very um, cold, and it seems very um, odd. Um, This law, it's not, I just want to clarify two things. One, it's normally applied to younger brothers who are still living amongst each other. So it's not necessarily about the normal way that this would go is not that like, if, if we put it into modern terms, like a widow is widowed in Ohio and some way distant cousin that she's hardly ever heard of from Arkansas is like, all right, it's my job to fly to Ohio. And No, it's normally younger brothers who still dwell together, assuming in many ways that that man who was to marry the woman was not already married. All right, so this isn't God just sanctioning polygamy. There's nowhere in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the entirety of the Bible, where God ever says that polygamy, having more than one spouse, is a good thing or holy in any way. 
So it's neither of those things, and it's also, although this is tied up with the person who buys back property, this is in no way treating the woman in the marriage like property. We could read this and maybe think that that marriage, like that the, the duty of the man was just to step in and provide offspring, and that wasn't actually supposed to be married to her. No, the man was actually supposed to be truly married to the widow, right? So he couldn't just marry this woman and then treat her poorly because after all, I was kind of forced into it. No, God says, you find the widow, your heart should break for her, your heart should want to provide for her, your heart should want to love her, so step into that marriage, into a true and legitimate marriage all on its own. All those things are included in this law. I want to make sure we understand why this is so important, because after all, why on earth, why on earth would this matter so much to God, Right? Why, why would this be such a big deal that you would have a law that requires something like this to happen? It's not merely about inheritance. Um, in the Old Testament, there were times where people didn't have offspring, and so they actually um, adopted someone as an heir and would um, provide, they would bring them into their family and then um, give them the inheritance. And also, daughters could inherit things as well as sons could. You can read about those things in like Numbers 36, talks about daughters inheriting because they didn't have brothers. Um, so this is partially about keeping land in the family, but I think the most important reason that God had this law in place is because it was supposed to preserve the physical lineage that would lead to the Messiah. That's the most important part of this, is that all throughout the Old Testament, the Jews are told, you have a Messiah coming. Abraham is told, of your offspring. Isaac is told, of your offspring, right? David is told, of your offspring, Judah was told, of your offspring. And so it's really important that God preserves these lines because he has made promises about where the Messiah would come. And it's interesting that there's really only two stories in the entirety of the Bible that talks about this scenario happening. Both of them have to do with the tribe of Judah. The Bible doesn't even mention this happening with other tribes. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it happened all the time. But the two that are recorded in Scripture for us are... Um, of the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe that, that Jesus came from. One of the things that's important about, um, we'll transition there for a moment, keep all those thoughts in our head. We're going to go a minute and think about Boaz. Boaz, as he responds to all this, you catch no hint of reluctance in Boaz at all, right? Boaz is ready um, to provide for Ruth, to marry her. He is excited to do that even. He volunteers before he knows that somebody else has the first chance to do it. Boaz still says, I really, really want to. Right? He doesn't have to be forced into it. He isn't like, well, if nobody else wants to, I will redeem you. Right? No, he's ready to do it and happy to do it even before this other guy may or may not refuse it. Because he has the same loving kindness on display that Ruth has. And so Boaz keeps her, with her, uh, keeps her with him safe overnight. I think that's why Boaz has her stay there. Because if he just sent a young widow off into the utter pitch black of the Bethlehem countryside night, that probably wouldn't turn out well. Um, and then he actually sends her home early in the morning. I think only as a way of protecting the reputation of Ruth. Because not every time when a harvest party was going on would it be filled with um, lots of clean fun, especially in nations that weren't Israel. And so he would, be send, he, would, he would be in the morning, Ruth, a Moabite, not from Israel, be walking home from the harvest, and her reputation would be absolutely torn into shreds. 
which is just a reminder for godly men among us. And if we want to be godly men, it's your job not just to actually protect. It's your job to also care enough about the woman that you care about her reputation as well. And so Boaz is ready to do this, but he also wants to fulfill the law of God. He understands that his desire to marry Ruth does not in any way mean that it's okay for him to, you know, just ignore that other kinsman. Because apparently Ruth and Naomi didn't know about this other guy. It seems like they were not in the know about this other guy who still is alive. After all, Naomi was gone for like 11 years, right, in Moab. So she could very well think that uh, that other relative is dead. So Boaz, though, understands that God's law is God's law. So even he's going to follow it even if he wants to do something else. And this is another reminder, a quick point of application for women in the room. Please don't listen to a man who ever says that he loves you and is happy to skirt around the corners of God's law. Please don't listen to that for a moment. And men in the room, please do not be a weak man who says that you love a woman and you are happy to skirt around the corners of the law for them. Do not do that. Godly love never forfeits God's commands. Godly love never forfeits God's commands. So Ruth gets home, Ruth talks to Naomi, and Naomi says, how did you fare? Um, A better translation for that, honestly, and you'll see it in different versions of the Bible, if you read like the King James Version, you'll probably read the sentence, who are you, my daughter? I don't think it's that Naomi was failing to recognize Ruth. Um, I think that what Naomi is asking is, Ruth, are you Ruth the Moabite? Ruth the widow? Ruth the stranger? Or are you, Ruth, the wife of Boaz? Because Ruth could have actually come home as a married woman. This marriage that we're talking about um, didn't require some kind of ceremony. They could have just been married and agreed to be married right there that night. And so Naomi says, Ruth, what's your identity right now? Are you a stranger, a widow, seeking rest, or have you found it? And you get this great word about Boaz and his character um, at, the end of this, at the end of this chapter where it says that he will not rest until he settles the matter today. Again, pointing to the fact that Boaz doesn't, isn't reluctant to fulfill the law. He isn't reluctant to be generous. He isn't reluctant to provide for Ruth. No, he's going to seek it out and he won't rest until Ruth is given rest. That's a good man. That's a faithful man. That's a faithful redeemer, right? We talked about this idea of a redeemer a lot. um, Whenever the Old Testament people of God would have heard the word redeemer, maybe when you think of the word redeemer, you probably think of Jesus first and foremost of the Messiah, of the one who went to the cross. Um, But the Old Testament people of God probably would have thought much more about this this office of a relative more than they would have thought about um, this uh, greater revelation we have of Jesus Christ on the cross. You say redeemer to someone in this culture at this time, they're going to think of the cousin of the brother who would have been responsible to care for them if they were in need. Because what redeem literally means is to buy back or to bring back or to restore. So that's what Boaz was trying to do here. Like, he is here to restore the fortunes of Ruth. He's here to restore the house of Elimelech where all of the men have deserted it. Boaz is here to do that. So redeemers step in on behalf 
of somebody else. Right? A redeemer steps in to buy back, to bring back, to buy land, to bring it back into the family, to buy slavery, to bring somebody back into the family. They, they go and they buy back the inheritance that had been lost for somebody else. In all of those situations, by the way, think about land, um, slavery, and inheritance, all of those problems come up through death or through debt. That's how they come up in the lives of people, either because somebody died or because somebody's in debt. But the Redeemer was always a kinsman. Right? It was really important in the law of God. It was always somebody that you had an actual relation to. It wasn't just somebody else in the nation of Israel, somebody else who happened to walk by and see what's going on. And God established that rule because the ultimate redeemer that would come would do the same exact thing. I want you to think about the redeemer that you have in Jesus Christ for just a moment. Um, Hebrews 2.17 says it this way, Therefore he, speaking of Christ, had to be made like his brothers. Notice that language, his brothers, his people. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or payment for the sins of the people. He had to be made like his brothers, not his subjects, right? Not his... uh, uh, citizens, but like his brothers. So if, in order to redeem you and me, Jesus had to first become a relative. He had to first become a kinsman. He had to first become like us so that he could pay for us. And that redeemer, the office of redeemer, always suffers a cost. That verse talked about propitiation, which is a word that means payment, to pay for the wrath of God. That Jesus Christ on the cross actually brought to the Father a payment that was sufficient to pull us out of our death and debt. But in order to do that, he had to put on flesh and blood so that he could suffer like one of his brothers. And Boaz will suffer a cost in this story, right? In order to, to bring Ruth into his family means that he has a cost associated with that. He has to pay for the land that was lost. He has to then pay and provide for a wife, right, and a family. But he's happy to do it. And that's just a fraction of the cost that our Savior, that our Redeemer, went through to pay for you and I. You see, Jesus entered into on, on the cross and in the incarnation, when, when we celebrate that at Christmas, we're celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ entered not into um, life being easy for him, not into, not into being um, lifted up on a golden pedestal every day of his life. No, he entered into the curse of sin on our behalf. Jesus came and he entered into that on our behalf so that we could be set free from it. So to free us, he must not only become like us, but he has to suffer the cost that's hanging over our head. Just like for Ruth, there's a cost that Boaz must pay to marry her. For Christ, there's a cost that he must pay to marry his bride, the church, his people. Which is even more amazing because Ruth seems, like I said before, pretty much perfect, and you and I And we are not worth that cost, right? We weren't widowed by somebody else's doing. We were widowed by our own sin. 
We weren't put into debt because our father-in-law died or our husband died. We were put into debt because we um, made that curse for ourselves. So Jesus enters into that curse so we can be brought of sl- we can be brought out of slavery, debt, and death, and He can bring us into promise and freedom, and peace and rest. He can bring us into rest. And if that seems like a small thing for us today, if we just hear about what Christ has done, the cost that he paid, and we think it's just a small thing that we can brush off of our shoulder and keep going on, the idea that our sin was paid for by another, if that feels like a small thing, it's because we've been entirely misled about the cost of our sin. So we think about sin as just some mistakes that we humans do sometimes. And when we think about them that way, then we normally can sweep them under the rug, no problem, and not think about them again. But the reality about your sin and my sin is that it is cosmically significant. It can't be hidden under a rug. It can't just be um, swept aside and not cared about. See, our sin actually sets us against God and his wrath. And that's not just because he's mean and he's capricious and he, he enjoys punishment. The reason for that is because God is holy and perfect, and you can't be holy and perfect and be okay with evil. You can't be holy and perfect and act like what just got swept under the rug is not there. And so Jesus enters into that problem, right? Jesus enters into the real and infinite penalty and cost for our sin that you would have to pay, that I would have to pay, And listen, if you don't trust in Jesus today, that cost is still there. If you don't trust in Christ today and what he has done to be the Redeemer, to go on the cross, to pay for the sin that you and I committed, that all the wrath of God could be put on him so that he could go into the grave and be raised up on the third day. If you don't trust in the work that he has already done to forgive sin and to pay for sin, then that payment is still there there. But for anyone who trusts in him, there is rest ready for you. There is rest ready for you today. Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it goes on to say how priests every day in the Old Testament had to keep on offering the sacrifices over and over and over again, right? They could not rest because the matter was never settled. But when Christ comes, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, when Christ came and he made the propitiation, he made the payment, he put himself on the cross and he went into the grave and then he resurrected, it says that he sat down at the end of all of that. He sat down at the end of all of that, even while the priests are still standing up, running here and there, trying to do the sacrifice. And the reason Christ could sit down is because the payment was actually finished. The payment was actually complete. It was actually enough. There wasn't another sacrifice for him to complete, listen, or for you to complete. There's not another one to do. There's nothing else there except for the finished work of Christ. Because our Redeemer didn't rest until he provided rest. You and I can have rest today. But church, where else do you seek it? Why don't you ask yourself that today, this week. Where else do I seek rest? Who else do I look to to provide for me assurance? Who else do I look to to provide for me feelings of belonging and peace and security and rest? What else do I believe is going to give me what is actually needed. 
Because there's really only one Redeemer available for you today. But the good news is that he welcomes all who come to him. He welcomes all who come to him. And Jesus is the most important thing for us to remember as we go from here. Jesus has finished all the work. He's finished all the work of redeeming us from death and sin so that you and I can live and rest in righteousness. Jesus has finished all the work of pulling and buying you and I out of death and sin so today you can live and you can rest in righteousness, in freedom, in peace, in life. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that we have a Savior um, to rest in and to trust in, and we thank you that his work on our behalf is always complete. Lord, we pray that we would be increasingly grateful for what he has done for us, and you would, uh, Lord, truly and deeply increase the rest of our souls and our Savior today. We pray all this in his name. Amen.